Hi, this is Greg from Explorer Maps in Missoula, Montana. We're excited to collaborate with the trail less traveled, helping connect people and place through art and storytelling. Please be sure to use promo code Mandela for your discount when visiting explorermaps.com. Welcome to the Trail Less Traveled, an adventure radio series and podcast dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world in order to take you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. This episode was recorded on location in collaboration with Explorer Maps. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventure from both near and far, as well as information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn about our international outreach projects at traillesstraveled.net. And now, here's your host, international expedition guide, conservationist, and yogi, Mandela. We're currently recording The Trail Less Traveled on a brisk morning in Gardner, Montana, just outside of Yellowstone National Park. When I look out the window, I can see the steam of Mammoth Hot Springs. And the last I looked, it was around negative 30 outside. And I'm sitting here with Dr. Nathan Varley. He is a wildlife biologist and ecologist. He is the co-owner of Yellowstone Wolf Tracker, which started in 2006. And he was raised in Mammoth Hot Springs, Yellowstone National Park. First and foremost, Nathan, thank you so much for making the time to sit with me on this cold morning in Yellowstone National Park. Happy to be here. Yeah, this will be fun. Where did you grow up and how was adventure and conservation a part of your childhood? Yeah, I grew up in Yellowstone National Park, which is, uh, I'm proud to say, not something that a lot of people have the privilege to do. And I do regard it as a privilege. It's, it was uh, an amazing upbringing, having all this wildlife and wild country around to explore, have my adventures as a child. It was an amazing setting to just let my imagination run wild and all the sense of discovery and adventure went along with, with living on this landscape. So I was very fortunate. Living in Yellowstone, of course, the fascination of all the wilderness around you sparks a lot of my inspiration of what I wanted to do with my life, which has tied in very closely with living in the park. It's to be a student foremost, continue learning about this amazing ecosystem, and a teacher passing on what I've learned and what I know to people that visit here, and to really delve more deeply into the subjects that I'm most fascinated in. I'm, I'm really fascinated in, in ecology, and that's kind of the study of the relationships among organisms and populations, and habitat, and a natural environment. That's what I've always been fascinated in, is well, you know, what is the relationship between, for example, some of the most iconic wildlife in the park, wolves and bison, it can be very dramatic. So that's what I've pursued with much of my career, with much of my time living in Yellowstone Park almost the whole time. So I'm looking out the window and I can see the steam of Mammoth Hot Springs. I'm wondering if you could share why there might be steam coming out from the place where you grew up. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of this area? 
Yes. Uh, Yellowstone's basically a big volcano. It doesn't really look like a classic volcano. It's really just a high elevation plateau that's now mostly forested and mountainous. Just the telltale signs that we are sitting on top of a dormant volcano when you see hot springs and geysers and the things that Yellowstone is really famous for. That's always been part of the setting that I've lived in, and I'm fascinated by the geology of the park, its volcanism, and exploring these hot springs and observing them over time has always been a, a real fulfilling experience. Essentially, Mammoth Hot Springs is a set of travertine terraces deposited by hot springs. It's where superheated water comes to the surface of the earth and spills out, and it forms these incredible terraced formations that are very colorful. The steam rises off them. They're just otherworldly. I've always referred to them as nature's fountains. And not only are they amazing fountains, but they change week to week, month to month, year to year, especially Mammoth Hot Springs, which is particularly dynamic among all Yellowstone's thermal features. I notice how it changes. Uh, you know, this spring over here will dry up and this spring over there will start pouring out more water and more steam and create more of a formation. It's just been fun for me to have experienced it on a decadal kind of schedule. You know, I, I first was fascinated or even exposed to the uh, hot springs there as a kid and they were amazing walk the boardwalks and see all the different features but over time I noticed like wow this is one of the biggest named ones when I was a kid that's now totally extinct and eroding away but it doesn't trend towards you know they're all drying up no it's just they dry up over here and they pop up over there and the activity's fairly constant over my lifetime. So I just watch as some of these big hot springs with fascinating names like Jupiter Terrace and Minerva Terrace and, you know, very legendary <laughs> kinds of names. They dry up or they become prolific and start really, you know, depositing a lot of travertine and building up over time. So I've loved that. I've loved to go back each time I go back and notice the changes that have occurred and, and, and what's going on up there. And I think all of Yellowstone kind of operates on that level, that there's change over time that's so fascinating. You might be given the impression that it's increasing or decreasing, but I like that idea that it's, you know, it's, it just changes, but the overall is fairly constant. Mm. You know, it's fairly average. So <laughs> uh, it's particularly with the geology, but, uh, you know, as time goes on, the wildlife, the weather and everything is very, very dynamic. And there could be trends in that, which are also fascinating because, uh, yeah, it's not meant to be changeless. It's, in fact, I think change is the biggest constant. It's the biggest factor of how this ecosystem evolves. As I said, I'm very fortunate to have had the experience of growing up in the park and, and having very special memories of that and also just deciding to stay here and be kind of a long-term part of that. And I think deep roots is important. It's kind of become a lot of what I feel like my identity is. And so I, I just think having identity is important to my mental health, really, and helps sustain me. As a kid, I have great memories of growing up in Mammoth Hot Springs. My dad was a fisheries biologist, and because of his job, we went into what we call the interior of the park, or towards the southern end, and lived our summers on Yellowstone Lake in Lake Village, another one of the small communities of mostly employees in the park, kind of like Mammoth, but smaller and more seasonal. 
for me, Lake Village was very exotic. And Mammoth was kind of plain. That's where we lived most of the time. And it was, you know, didn't quite have the same qualities to me as, as Lake Village had. And, you know, what did Lake have? It had these amazing big lake shorelines, deeply forested areas, uh, mountainous settings uh, in the distance. And it, it just had something that felt a lot more like going to sort of summer camp or, you know, like going on vacation somewhere, but got to stay there the whole summer. And my mother, who also worked for the Park Service doing various jobs as a ranger, and my father, again, a fisheries biologist, would have their work to do, but would sometimes haul us along. And I do remember going on some of my dad's fishery surveys on rivers and streams in the park, and I just kind of have to follow along on the shoreline as they were doing their work in the water. And I had my own discoveries doing that. It was mostly amphibians and reptiles which are a group that are not well represented among the wildlife of Yellowstone. It being, you know, a very cold and dry, high elevation place, it doesn't have a whole lot of the reptiles and and amphibians. But I would catch snakes and frogs and things like that as my (laughs) father would do his fisheries work. And I do have great memories of doing that and getting to kind of explore wild places in the park as they were doing their biology work. And I was kind of starting my own fascination with biology at the same time. Mm-hmm. Great memories of, of that and just living in the park and being exposed to all these different places. I think that's what really instilled this feeling that this is home and this is where I belong. And definitely also a world traveler and I want to explore other places. The diversity and wonder of the whole world is also on my agenda, but having a place to come back to that really I can call home is so important to me. I like that idea of investing in a community because I think over time, my work has been not just about park and its resources, but its people too. And there's always been strong community in Yellowstone because it's just big enough for there to be you know, long-term residents that want to stay here. We, of course, have a lot of transient residents as people come and work in the service industry and move on. It's a nice combination of knowing a lot of old-timers who have been here for a long time, maybe like Myself, I must be in that category now as someone that's lived here my whole life. Uh, but also meeting a lot of new people that come here and see it for the first time or maybe are looking for that community to settle down in and invest in. They come because they love the park too and what it has to offer. So you don't find a whole lot of people, at least that stay here very long, that aren't interested in living here for what Yellowstone is, Mm -hmm. right? Like we don't have a lot of amenities here and we're far from airports and hospitals and things like that. So you kind of have to be invested in the landscape of Yellowstone to really want to be here and be willing to put up with, uh, I think you mentioned the well below zero Fahrenheit days that we get here in the winter and hardships. There really are some hardships of living here, but it's all worth it if you're really invested in both the resources and the community. Mm-hmm. Now, Nathan, this is a radio show, right? So the people listening don't know how cold it is outside or what you're looking at when you look out the window. So I was wondering if you could just take a moment to maybe stand up, stretch your legs and using words, paint the picture for the listener, what you see when you look out the window right now. 
most views of Gardner really are looking into Yellowstone National Park. And this is the lowest elevation part of the park. It's a little bit more dry grassland than it is forested, like much the rest of the park. And so I see these rolling hills that have kind of snow in the draw, but are blown free of snow on the tops. Further up, as you gain elevation, see this very vast view looking into the park. There's more forested areas that are like the skirts of the mountainside. And you can even see up to 10,000 feet in some of the highest peaks of northern Yellowstone just tower over our town like sentinels. Uh, One of my favorites being Electric Peak at almost 11,000 feet that just is snow-clad, a whole different world, rising easily, you know, 6,000 feet above the town of Gardner. Nathan, I would like to talk to you about the decision to anchor here in Yellowstone National Park to be with the wolves. In the 1990s, I was, at a time in my life, I was exploring a lot of different job opportunities, mostly seasonal, mostly very short term. I had finished two degrees in the sciences. I had gotten a wildlife management degree and immediately went into a master's program. This was at Montana State University in Bozeman. And I studied mountain goats for my master's degree. And the goats were living mostly in the Absorca Beartooth Wilderness, north of Yellowstone, and in Yellowstone Park. And in fact, the topic was really about how are these mountain goats going to affect the communities in Yellowstone National Park? Still kind of an open question, but they were mostly introduced by state game agencies in the 1950s and 60s and have since colonized parts of Yellowstone Park and are still here today. Mostly, I believe, as a benign species occupying a bit of a vacant niche in the park. But that was an amazing experience on its own, was exploring the mountains in and around Yellowstone, studying these magnificent creatures, the white mountain goats of the Rockies. After that was done, I kind of bounced around a little bit, taking jobs as a wildlife biologist just to try to gain additional experience, mostly field work. I was at a time in my life where I really loved being in the outdoors and doing hands-on work and gaining experience, working on studies of various wildlife from around the world, really, and a lot of short-term, very vibrant experiences. And just for an example, I tracked pine mart and lynx and wolverine on the Targhee National Forests of Idaho. I went to South America and worked in one of the premier national parks in Chile called Torres del Paine. A lot of people have heard of that because it's just a remarkable section of the Patagonia region. And I studied the Huanacos, which are like wild llamas in that national park. I went to Alaska and studied moose in a very remote region of the bush, as they call it there in Alaska. And just a number of experiences like these that led me to different places in the world where I was like, I don't know where I'm going to end up and where my next best job is going to be when I came back to Yellowstone. And that was mostly because I hadn't quite figured out what my next job was going to be. And being a poor post-college student that didn't have a job, kind of go home and live with the parents for a while (laughs) until the next thing comes along. So that's what I did. And This time happened to coincide with a really 
pivotal time in my life and for Yellowstone, which was the reintroduction of gray wolves to the park. And I was aware of this program. Honestly, I'd kind of studied it and gotten to know the idea of wolves being brought back to the park. I never thought I would see that happen. I was actually one of the skeptics that was like, oh no, politically, this will never happen. Restore a controversial predator to the now working landscapes mostly of the Rocky Mountains is just not going to fly in our in our day and age. So I was surprised when it did. <laughs> I was happy that it had happened. And I was immediately fascinated with what was going on on the ground as I returned to my home in Yellowstone, waiting for the next thing. And like, where was I going to go and work next? But I got my foot in the door and volunteered for the Yellowstone Wolf Recovery Project. So actually doing some of the work of the project at the time. They were taking wolves captured in Canada, bringing them to Yellowstone, acclimating them here for a short time, and then releasing them to become the wild free-roaming population eventually that we now see today. And all kinds of glamorous work, like picking up roadkill, to feed wolves in the acclimation pen and hiking it up there on a frozen day and hacking apart frozen carcasses so the wolves could eat it. <laughs> uh, things like that was what I did with my time. But I also got to start the actual tracking of some of the free roaming wolves. So doing classic wildlife biology, using the radio telemetry to track the collars of the wolves. And what was most surprising and what made the biggest impact on me was not only could we find these wolves on the landscape of Yellowstone, could also observe them. There was a lot of predictions that wolves would be kind of ghostly and you wouldn't really see them very often or you just catch these fleeting glimpses of them and, and they, they would just disappear and lo- mostly live out of sight of the visitors of Yellowstone and even the biologists. But that wasn't my experience. I was actually seeing them on a pretty much daily basis. I was actually learning the members of the pack, the different packs that I was seeing. And I think the most remarkable memory for me was some of my first observations of wolves and noting that unlike a lot of other species I had studied up to that point, uh, these were a collection of individuals that I could easily tell apart such that over time I could kind of follow the lives of individuals, not just the pack themselves, but as individuals. I'd done a coyote study earlier, and coyotes look a lot more like each other, and they're harder to tell apart. And so to kind of see the differences in appearance of wolves was a real game changer. Like, oh, wow, you know, this is easy to look at relationships within the pack. Over time, getting to know the personalities of individual wolves. And that to me was really fascinating. I hadn't really had done a study up to that point where there was so much individual variation and the ability to really focus in on that. So I was hooked. I was like, oh yeah, wolves are pretty neat. They're not only observable in Yellowstone, they do very interesting things, both within the pack or with other species. And so I would see predation events, wolves killing elk and eating them. I would see just amazing play where they would actually interact with each other and do these fun things like slide down a hill and run back up and do it again. And they were, they were fun to watch. And so (laughs) 
I wanted to kind of stay on longer and maybe not look so hard for that next job elsewhere, but stay in Yellowstone. And that really did, to sum up a lot of experience, open up the doors in the late 90s for me to really stay in Yellowstone. It was the wolves that made me want to stay here and that's been long-term. I've, I've kind of been here ever since. That was <laughs> over 25 years ago, close to 30, and, and I'm still here. And, and a lot of my work still involves wolves as well as other wildlife. My work has really expanded and diversified. So not just wildlife biology work, but I got to work on documentary film work with Bob Landis, an incredible, well-known cinematographer and producer that's local here and has done a lot of the Yellowstone Wolf films that maybe a lot of the audience has seen over time. Got into the education work. I mean, there was going to be quite an appetite for people to visit Yellowstone and learn about the wolves and hopefully learn directly from them by watching them, which has become really quite a pastime for a lot of people, but something that, that I've done a lot of facilitation for over time. And again, some wildlife biology work. I ended up working on a PhD at the University of Alberta that was really a study of the demographics of the wolf population and the predator-prey interaction between wolves and elk, their primary prey in the park. And that was fun to be part of some of the early wolf studies in Yellowstone, but also carrying on quite a long tradition that, for me, dated well back to the earliest years for me in the park, which was doing elk studies. Um, <laughs> elk studies have been done almost continuously since the 1940s and still are being done in Yellowstone today. So they're by far the most studied species in the park. And we've seen this over quite a long time, a little shy of a century of elk studies being done in Yellowstone. But I'm proud to have contributed to part of that body of work that's still accumulating today on wolf studies. And, and of course, the last 30 years or so being with their primary predator, the gray wolf, being fully restored. And now we have recovered populations of grizzly bears, black bears, mountain lions, wolves. Pretty much all the major predators that you would find in a Rocky Mountain ecosystem are thriving in Yellowstone today. And, you know, are the elk disappearing? Well, no, they're actually less abundant than they once were, but that's normal, that's natural. And they're also doing quite well and numbering in the thousands in Yellowstone still today. Uh, so I like how it's all turned out, you know, both ecologically and for me. And I don't regret for a moment being able to stay on and watch as this wolf recovery has been successful and all the fascinating ecological ramifications of it unfolding in front of me. It's just been magnificent. That's the voice of Dr. Nathan Varley. He is an ecologist and co-owner of Yellowstone Wolf Tracker. Nathan, I'd like to now learn a little bit more about Yellowstone Wolf Tracker. For someone out there listening who's quite inspired to come to Yellowstone National Park and to see a wolf, can you please tell us a little bit more about Yellowstone Wolf Tracker? One of the unexpected parts of staying in Yellowstone and working with wolves was a pretty dramatic pivot to ecotourism. So this idea that maybe I wasn't going to be a wildlife biologist working for an agency like the National Park Service, as some of my friends and colleagues have done. 
or an academic that's really a practitioner of science that's working on uh, fascinating ecological questions that, you know, my PhD degree certainly set me up for that kind of career. Well, I haven't done that either, though I remain very dedicated to the sciences in many ways. I took a turn into small business and that was mostly happenstance. It was this idea that Wolves had become an attraction in Yellowstone, that we could see them, as I discovered in my own biology work of tracking them. It's like, wow, you get to see wolves and they do interesting things. These are going to be something that park visitors are going to want to see in the future. And that fascination is just going to grow. So it has. It has grown to being perhaps the most reputable place on the planet for going to see wild wolves. Yellowstone National Park, you know, we're already set up for tourism and have been for 150 years. But we've never been a destination for specific sightings of wildlife species. And I have to delve into that a little bit more because people say, well, what about bears? You know, Yellowstone's famous for bears. Yeah, we've always been. And there's been a fascination for visitors for a long time to come to Yellowstone and have an experience with bears. But most of that started at a time when we were actually feeding bears and people would be able to watch them by feeding them along the roadside or going to garbage dumps and watching them sort through the garbage that we would place out there for them. That's no longer done, thankfully. All kinds of problems with that. It's not good for bears or for people in the long run. We got away from that in the 60s and 70s. We almost lost our grizzly bear population along the way, but thankfully they have recovered and they're back on natural food. But generally speaking, the visitor would have experiences with wildlife just by encountering them on the course of just visiting Yellowstone Park. But now, with wolves and to some extent other species like bears, you have this interest in having a guide take you to them because they're just not easy for the general visitor to locate and to watch. And an entire industry has blossomed with the recovery of wolves and grizzly bears in Yellowstone in the last you know, 20 to 30 years, an industry that really wasn't there prior to the recovery of these populations. The fact that visitors need a little facilitation to both find and to watch and interpret what they're seeing when they go out looking for wolves and to some degree, some of this other wildlife that we have in Yellowstone kind of is a whole cast of characters that we can draw upon, we can maybe find on any given day. It's boomed. Wolf watching is the thing to do in Yellowstone. Bears and wolves are still the main species that people want to see, but again, among a diverse community of other wildlife. And so we were called upon a lot in our official capacity as Wolf Project technicians to take journalists or visiting scholars or people of note into the field to try to watch the wolves. And so I was kind of on the job training <laughs> to end up doing what I eventually did, which was extending that service to the general visitor. And we worked for a number of companies that were kind of pioneering into this field of business early on. And Eventually, my wife Linda and I decided, hey, we're going to do this 
for ourselves. We're going to start a business that is a service, as a guide service, to take people into the park for wolf and other wildlife observations. And it started very slowly at first. There wasn't a lot of people doing it. There wasn't a lot of people interested. And I wouldn't say that the interest wasn't there. They just didn't know it existed, right? So it's taken some time for word to get out there that, like, this is something that you can do. Come to Yellowstone and hire a guide for a day or for a week, and they'll show you the wolves. My wife, Linda, is also a wildlife biologist. And for whatever reason, in the late 90s and early 2000s, we weren't finding those permanent jobs elsewhere. We were still searching for, like, what do we really want to do? that ties right in with wolves in Yellowstone. And this just became the obvious choice. Mm -hmm. There's so much autonomy in business. Starting your own small business, in the sense this guide service, is kind of the American dream of, you know, doing your own thing and having it work in our capitalist system. (laughs) So we're very fortunate, and it's been pretty satisfying to be successful at doing that. And as that's grown through the years and Yellowstone Wolf Tracker has become a bigger business that employs numerous guides to do the work that we started doing early on. It also comes with this responsibility, what I feel is an obligation to give back to the resource that we rely on and seeing particularly wolves, but a number of iconic species like grizzlies and bison not being treated so well as they leave the park. I would even describe the landscapes around Yellowstone as being hostile to these animals that we so revere that we so love in Yellowstone and not having a high chance of survival if they leave the park. One extreme example is almost all bison that leave the park die. Mm -hmm. I think that fact is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. I'm really disappointed that many wolves that leave the park during hunting season, either in Montana or Wyoming, have a high chance of dying. I don't know why these states would be interested in sending hunters to kill the animals that are so lucrative to the tourism industry. This doesn't make sense to me. There's nowhere in the world where you can do both hunting and ecotourism with the same population of animals. It's just incompatible. And so I've become an advocate over time of protecting more wolves, bison, grizzly bears, all these animals that are safe in Yellowstone, but not so safe when they leave the park. And becoming a voice for them has really been based on the economics of it. We're not just doing it because we love wolves, which we do. We're not just doing it because wolves are important components of a natural ecosystem, which appeals to a lot of people, but doesn't seem to appeal to state managers and a lot of politicians. What does appeal to them is the idea that there's an industry here, that there is money to be made, jobs to be had, revenue for taxation and whatnot that is real sustainable long term. And we've begun to organize ourselves as an industry so that we can have a stronger voice in the decisions that are made on these different species at the state level. And that's growing. And we feel like as time goes on, we're going to become more and more effective at conservation through this lens of economics. And I wish it wasn't just that, you know, that it's all about the dollar. 
for now, that's strong. But as time goes on, I think we'll even get into the ethics of, should we be killing this animal? Do we need to kill these animals when there's not a real strong justification in many cases to do so? But for now, you know, we really get in a lot of traction on this idea that we make a living doing this, and that ought to be recognized and supported by the state we live in. That is the voice of Dr. Nathan Varley. He is an ecologist and co-owner of Yellowstone Wolf Tracker. We are looking out the window on a day where it's... How cold is it outside right now, Nathan? I think it's minus 20 Fahrenheit. We're looking out the, the window right now at the steam of Mammoth Hot Springs, and that's where Nathan grew up. So he is really connected to this landscape. Hello, this is Greg Robitaille from Explore Maps in Missoula, Montana. For as long as I can remember, I have been amazed at how my brother Chris turns his creative thoughts into the most incredible art imaginable. When we were young kids growing up in Toronto, one day our mom said, Chris, please go take a nap. But as fate would have it, I think he heard mom say, Chris, go make a map. And thus, I like to think that's when Explore Maps was born. Many years later, we have now rendered more than 60 hand-drawn artistic story maps of travel destinations worldwide, all created with the intention of connecting people in place and helping communities raise awareness for the conservation of our public lands and the wildlife and distinct cultures that inhabit these amazing areas. So come along and join Chris and I on this educational and inspirational journey, using hand-drawn maps as the vessel to help tell these unique stories. Please be sure to use promo code MANDELA for your discount when visiting ExploreMaps.com. We're speaking with Dr. Nathan Varley, and he is an ecologist and co-owner of Yellowstone Wolf Tracker. Now, I've been in the park for the past week studying with Yellowstone Forever, doing a field seminar, and I ran into the Yellowstone Wolf Tracker team on many occasions. And I want to just say... I am very grateful for the knowledge and the respect that was shared with both the visitor and the animal itself. Nathan, I would love if you could speak candidly about what's happening right now in this part of the world in terms of wolves and other predators and what you think someone listening out there could do to be an advocate. I'm happy to talk about the plight of wolves today because I've really described how successful wolf reintroduction has been in Yellowstone and the Rocky Mountains and that in fact the population has grown and expanded its distribution to being really a conservation success story, perhaps one that's most notable, you know, in the last century for many people around the world. They've heard about wolves recovering in Yellowstone and they were taken off the federal endangered species list in 2011. So that's kind of bureaucratically a success milestone. All those things are true. Wolves have successfully recovered in our region today as they are in many parts of the world, including Europe, uh, very highly populated places in the world today, at least populated with humans, have also recovered wolf populations. And it's impressive. At the same time, many of the reasons that drove them into 
obscurity and near extinction many years ago are still around today. There's a lot of misinformation about wolves. There's a lot of perception of wolves as being problems for humans. And while some of that is true, our methods for dealing with those things have evolved and advanced so much in recent decades that they probably don't have a reputation that is fairly placed upon them by us. So another way of saying that is that wolves still get a bad rap in today's world with a lot of humans. We still can't escape some of the folklore and mythology around Western notions of wolves. And when I say that, I mean mostly kind of the pastoral, agricultural sense of, hey, we have domestic animals that wolves might kill and eat. Therefore, wolves are bad. We also, in this world today, are hunters, and wolves are hunters, and we sometimes come into competition. And so one of the perhaps biggest voice of resentment towards wolves today is from the hunting community, and specifically the commercial hunting. So like hunting outfitting have been pretty outspoken about like, oh, there's too many wolves, we need to reduce their numbers. So what we see is a hostility towards wolves that gets manifested in management mostly through political processes. So it's unfortunate, but wolves as a species and their continued recovery or at least sustenance, you know, that they can be around in the world today is really driven a lot by politics, that they're a political football for us to kick around and liberal agendas to have more wolves out there and more conservative agendas to sort of have less wolves out there. (laughs) And all the reasons that we can put up to have more wolves or have less wolves can be really debated socially among the different cultures that engage in this. But in terms of actual pragmatic management, none of the reasons really amount to we have to have fewer wolves out there. They typically take care of themselves. The problems they do cause are better addressed on a very specific level where the problems actually happen rather than sort of some blanket directive to kill more wolves. That's what we kind of deal with in the States today is the notion that, you know, with fewer wolves then these problems are going to improve. Whereas in fact, we have better ways to address those problems directed more surgically to the actual situation where they're occurring. And the rest of the wolves are doing just fine and they're not bothering anybody and they're not leading to any kind of ecological collapse or the collapse of an industry like livestock production. Not even close, not even close. I mean, just just these remote and isolated examples that do occur and we all hear about, but there's no in my mind, real justification for the treatment that wolves are getting in states like Montana and Idaho and Wyoming, where they're still just trying to overcome this cultural perception of an animal that's bad or that is economically leading to losses. I would always put up our example of wolves being a multi-million dollar industry in Yellowstone Park, and that really benefits all kinds of communities and the gateways to Yellowstone Park that's far more economically viable than the losses that we can find in other industries. In other words, there's a lot more benefit financially or economically for wolves in these states than there really is losses. 
So we'll continue to try to right the ship and work on these things in the future so that maybe wolves get a better shake. But what can people do about that is have those conversations and, and relay this information that, in fact, you know, we can be quite compatible with wolves and we have techniques to deal with the problems that do arise, but we can't continue to operate on misinformation and flimsy justifications for just killing a lot of wolves. That's not working. That's the voice of Dr. Nathan Varley. He is an ecologist and the co-owner of Yellowstone Wolf Tracker. Nathan, what have wolves taught you? Wolves are very social beings. You know, they live in family units like we live. And so the similarities between wolves and humans is really great. To me, they represent this teamwork, this cooperation, this reliance upon one another to survive and thrive, to go on and and, and be successful in the world today. And so I feel like the lessons I've got from being a student of wolf behavior and activity is one of family bonding. And the strength of the wolf is the pack. The strength of the pack is the wolf. There's an expression out there that really gets at this idea that as a unit, as a group, they're successful, whereas as individuals, they may not be. And I love that. That to me is a lesson in life and how we rely on each other and our families and our communities to really be a lot more effective than we would be just on our own. Nathan, thank you so much for your time and energy joining me on the Trail Less Traveled. Thank you. This has been fun. The Trail Less Traveled is a locally harvested adventure radio series dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world. You can hear the premiere of the radio show every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time, streaming live online at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere, the show is also a podcast available everywhere with a full show archive at traillesstraveled.net. I would like to extend my gratitude to Dr. Nathan Varley of Yellowstone Wolf Tracker. This episode was recorded on location in the Lamar Valley of Yellowstone National Park in collaboration with Explore Maps. I would like to thank Explore Maps for supporting storytelling, community, art, history, culture, and conservation. You can learn more about the partnership between the Trail Less Traveled and Explore Maps by visiting exploremaps.com. And Explorer is actually spelled without the E. I would also like to extend my gratitude to Float Missoula. It's such a treat to return to Missoula after a freezing cold week in Yellowstone National Park for an hour of relaxation. In 2021, there was a series of aggressive legislation passed towards the management of wolves. I encourage you to get informed and get engaged when it comes to all wildlife in Montana. Predators like wolves and grizzly bears play a significant role in a healthy ecosystem. If you would like to get informed and involved when it comes to wildlife, habitats, and public access here in Montana, I encourage you to look into the Montana Wildlife Federation. Since 1936, 
The Montana Wildlife Federation has been the most effective wildlife conservation organization in Montana. You can learn more by visiting montanawildlife.org. Well, that's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Living in Missoula is a privilege. With privilege comes responsibility. Please get informed, get engaged, and speak up on behalf of wildlife and wild places. If you think you're too small to make a difference, you've never spent the night with a mosquito.